country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. In the month of July, Indonesia recorded its highest daily numbers of both new coronavirus cases and deaths, making it the epicentre of the global pandemic, ahead of India and Brazil. The daily peak of 55,000 new cases in mid-July, though shocking, represented only those cases for which the government had confirmed PCR testing results and had included in its national tally. For many epidemiologists, public health officials, journalists and other observers of Indonesia's pandemic over the past one and a half years, this surge was no surprise. Since early on, experts have known that COVID cases and deaths in Indonesia are vastly undercounted and underreported. Among those seeking to provide a more complete picture of the state of Indonesia's pandemic are a range of volunteer organisations. Lapok COVID-19 is one of these groups, made up of scientists, public health experts and journalists, with a focus on collecting COVID-19 data. Last weekend, they were jointly awarded the Tasrif Award by Indonesia's Journalists Association for bravery in their coverage of the pandemic. What motivates this group of volunteers? How do they carry out their work when government processes fail? And what are the implications for Indonesia if it continues to get the numbers wrong? My guest today is Dr Irma Hidayana, an independent public health consultant and co-founder of Lapor COVID-19. Hello, Irma. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Indonesia. Hello, Jima. How are you? I'm great. And thank you for being here. I know that you're super busy, so really appreciate it. And I also want to start by congratulating you and the whole Lapokovit team on receiving the Tasrif Award from the Alliansi Journalists of Indonesia, the Journalists Association. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us why you established Lapokovit. Who was involved and what was the problem or the need? that prompted you to come together? Well, in the beginning, actually, we will share our concern about transparency of the pandemic in Indonesia, like data transparency and the way the government prevent the whole nation from the infections of the virus. Like if we could fly back to the beginning of the 2020, for example, when we first heard that an outbreak happened at Wuhan, and then quickly right after that, the neighbor countries of Indonesia have reported to WHO that they found cases. They found cases of COVID-19 in their country, except for Indonesia. But at the same time, in the beginning of last year, the government did a positive communications, like keep motivating the nation that we are good. The virus won't come. Uh, we are a religious community. We have this traditional food. We have this uh, ritual, blah, 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 that would protect us from the virus. Well, 
This is so wrong. When you are facing an outbreak, when you are facing an infectious disease, then you have to use scientific basis in order to prevent it, in order to protect the nation from the infection. So what you need to do is actually you have to start a mitigations. You have to start prevention steps where you involve epidemiologists, public health experts, and those healthcare workers. Just prepare them just in case the virus came to Indonesia. We are all ready, but we didn't see that. We didn't see that at all. So that's actually a brave situation that uh, we then think that, all right, we have a problem with all of this. We know that when you have a prevention problem, you will have data collection problem. And when you present the data, the data might not be represents the real situation on the ground. So based on those situations, we decided, okay, then what can we do? And then because we cannot meet each other, I came up with, why don't we just set up a platform using innovation, technology innovation, and then to facilitate uh, people so that people could tell others about the situations that is happening surrounding them regarding COVID-19 so that the information would come from the grassroots, from people to people. And then we as a platform facilitate the medium, the platform, and we verify the information. We aim actually to complement uh, the government's data, but at the same time, uh, this is the shadows report from the grassroots because it seemed like there were many underreported cases at that time, and then the government were not able to take into account those data from the ground. So that's why we're trying to encourage the public to be involved and actively involved to report, to share information through the chatbot uh, of Laporte COVID-19. So when you say we, can you tell us a bit more about who else is involved? Yeah, are you scientists? Are you journalists? Who are you? So I am myself, uh, my background is public health, but I was very involved in the anti-corruption movement in Indonesia back then in 2008. And then I worked with the um, uh, social movement too in Indonesia. So I also focus on public health and human rights. Then because I have this basis of the public health knowledge, and I know that journalists slash activists are also a very involved, very concerned with the situation, know that something is wrong with the, the way the government handling and preventing and controlling the pandemic. So we worked together. So there were some senior journalists, uh, national journalists from Indonesia. There were a couple of researchers, uh, legal and human rights researchers and defenders. There are other good friends who used to work together, who used to go on the street to do protests together. So basically the founders was those people. Wow. Okay. So you come from a range of backgrounds, but this activist connection is really important. Can we say more about what you've highlighted here, what you were convinced was a discrepancy between what the government was reporting and the official numbers of COVID cases and deaths in Indonesia? And that was early on in the pandemic, you spotted this as a problem. Why was there a discrepancy then and why is there still one now? 
So in the beginning, when we established Lapore COVID, we were concerned with the data. We were concerned the way the government preventing us uh, from getting the virus. Regarding the data, we were concerning why the government still didn't uh, report, didn't find any cases of COVID-19 in Indonesia. So this is so weird because many researchers have found and predicted, forecasted that Indonesia might have the virus and then the infections might be in the community already at that time. So we try to collect the data from the grassroots. That is the beginning of everything about this data discrepancy, actually. And then later on, the WHO, Dr. Tedros, sent a letter to Jokowi reminding, it's a friendly reminder for Jokowi that, hey, Indonesia, actually, you need to be really careful. You need to be prepared. Please use your bureaucracy to do the appropriate epidemiological surveillance so you do not miss or you do not have underreported cases. So it's very subtle. The language, it's, the message is very subtle, but it's clear that actually Indonesia has a case, but we didn't report it. And then what's happening next was the government already reported and published every day the number of cases, like official number of cases in Indonesia. At that time, people were still afraid to report to our chatbot because they, they were afraid that, oh, when I uh, report to a uh, Lapor COVID chatbot, about my family who just passed away, for example, without any diagnosis. We don't know what was going on and so on and so forth. If I report it, then I'm afraid if I was expected to spread misinformation, things like that. So it's a huge challenge for me too to uh, collect data from grassroots. But then we started to switch our activity a little bit by inviting as many volunteers to be involved in Lapore COVID to collect the official data from the city and provincial levels. So by the end of April 2020 or early May 2020, most cities and regions and provincial level in across Indonesia already have a center of COVID data information where they have a statistic data on how many uh, new cases, how many death number, and so on and so forth. So start from there, our volunteers copy and pasted the statistic numbers into one big spreadsheet that we created. So Irma, there was no centralized system to collect this data at a time, there was no centralized, but maybe in May, actually, the government has a centralized data. But also, we found out, because we collect the statistic data from the city level, from the provincial level, and then when you add it up together, 514 cities across Indonesia and 34 provinces uh, in Indonesia, you can easily add it up and sum up all together. And the number is always much different. So there's always discrepancy, the data that is uh, published uh, officially at the central level, at the national level, when you compare it to the provincial or uh, city or region level. So it started uh, from the beginning. And up till now, the situation is just still the same. 
you, we could see discrepancy, even thousands gap of death data between what is being published at the national level and then when you see all the provincial and city and region level. So why, when you ask why, we don't know the answer uh, quite frankly, but let's do a scientific Yes, if this is an error, for example, human errors, it's technological constraints. We've been here like for one and a half years, more than one and a half years. And then Indonesia has so many experts in data, data scientists, data information technologists, and so on and so forth. And we are big nations. I don't think human errors or technological uh, constraint, for example. So there must be something else about this. This is my guess. Yeah, I think that's interesting for people to hear that actually there is data that is being collected, as you're saying, at the regional, provincial, city levels. That seems at least quite comprehensive data, or at least it's it's more comprehensive than when it is collated centrally and presented. I guess there's also, you know, we could we could talk here. Um, perhaps, you know, if, if we were talking with an epidemiologist, they would also tell us that there are so many people that will never be counted in the system. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's actually what I wanted to point out too. When we talk about data discrepancy between national data, city and provincial level, level data, we only limit it on the official data. What does it mean with official data? That is data that is only... Uh, been confirmed by PCR testing. How about the probable death? How about those who death at home when they're doing uh, self-isolations? It's something totally different and the numbers are huge. So we have uh, those problems with the official data. We have a problem with data discrepancy. And also we have another meaningful under-reporting death data that unfortunately the government doesn't count. Well, uh, in fact, uh, from the perspective of epidemiological surveillance, you need to count. If the death is as a result of clinically symptoms uh, from COVID-19, then you have to count it as a death, uh, a cause of COVID. But the problem is in Indonesia, you know, we are archipelago and there are so many remote areas where there's lack of access to health center, access to testing, access to medical help, to health workers, you know, concerning. And then uh, right now, the wave of uh, COVID-19 is moving to the remote areas. At the village level, there are so many cases. Cases, I mean, cases that some of them, they don't get chance to get tested. And this is not only happening outside uh, Jaffa and Bali Islands, but also happening within Jaffa Island. So it's very concerning because when the community transmission is very high at the village level, where health facility is not really adequate, there was lack of ventilators, lack of appropriate medical supplies, and so on and so forth. It's going to be very dangerous. And plus, pandemic education, uh, what people understand, people uh, raise perceptions, uh, people in remote areas, some of them, they are still don't know what is going on. If they know, sometimes they don't believe uh, that there's COVID-19. So as a result, they don't want to get tested. Because if I got it, 
then I could not go to work. Most of them, they have to go to their farms. They have to go to like uh, traditional markets. They have to do like a daily job, you know, and they have to go outside. And if they have to isolate themselves or uh, to be sent to a center isolation, it means the economy of the family would be impacted so much. What would I eat then? So yeah. there's so many complexity here. Absolutely. So many complexities. But where you started from with La Por COVID, it still is so important, which is really around numbers. That's what we're talking about. The data matters because, as you said in your opening there, it's about mitigation and prevention and you can't know what you're dealing with unless you have the data. And then it also feeds into directly into government policy decisions and then the communications that's coming out of government Very recently, the current peak that we saw in Jakarta a couple of weeks ago and other parts of Java appears to have passed perhaps, and there was a lockdown that accompanied that. And we all understand wherever we are in the world that politicians are telling us that they're making decisions based on the numbers. So in Indonesia's case, you know, I guess remind us just how important those numbers are that the government is basing its decisions on. That's true, actually, Gemma. We're still concerning about the way the government collecting the data and presenting the real data. I mean, the way they decided a policy of controlling the situations in each area, it's based on which data. This is what we need to know. And then we've been trying to push the government to to be more transparent, to take into account uh, underreporting cases. But it's been so hard. It's been, especially at the central level, it's been it's been so hard. We feel like we aren't heard. So they don't listen to us. They care more uh, from the private sector's community than from the epidemiologists, uh, from the public health experts, and from the civil societies, from the, like, you, you name it. Everybody, everybody who are somebody in this country who are very independent have already spoke. It's been one and a half years. We try to tell the government. We try to speak uh, softly. We try to do protests. Try so many ways. Uh, to remind them, but it's been it's been hard, and it's not only about the data. When you when when we talk about the vaccination program, for example, we reminded the governments that there is the guideline from the uh, WHO that we need to follow regarding who should you prioritize to receive the vaccines. Of course, the healthcare workers and then elderly. And then those who live in the red zone where transmission is very high. But then what is happening is actually when the government haven't uh, really finished even half vaccinations for the healthcare workers, vaccinations to the media, to the journalists was open. And then the government also invited creative workers, like arts and creative workers, like YouTubers, celebrities, uh, those who have followers on social media. Right. So their rationale was that they wanted to use these people to then get the message out, right, to encourage people to go and get the vaccine. 
but did we have a problem of supply at that time? Yes, of course, even up till now. It's fine when we have a surplus, when the supply is enough, and then when you have data, when you have the vaccine distribution management of very well, then it's fine. But the problem is the vaccine availability is still very limited and we still have problem with the vaccine distribution management. have to give priority to those who are very vulnerable. And then the WHO have already give us a clear guide on how to do the vaccinations in order to prevent community transmissions. So this is so wrong. So we need to ensure that vaccine is distributed evenly and equally. Tell us about the recent actions that you've been taking to get the government to step up on this in relation to paid vaccination. Yeah, we did a lot of advocacy work in uh, vaccinations. Uh, The first one is asking the government to be more transparent in distributing uh, the vaccine to who and where, how many doses and so on and so forth. And then how much money did they spend uh, in order to purchase the vaccines. And then we also criticize the government uh, when they allow uh, private sectors to inoculate their employees and uh, their own family. Uh, the rich so will get uh, an access to vaccines rather than the poor. And then just recently, because the government has a very crazy idea in the middle of the limitations of the vaccination that we have, the government create this crazy idea uh, to sell the vaccine. So the paid COVID-19 vaccine for individuals were then launched. But I would say that we were almost successful to prevent it because uh, when we asked the government, this is not fair, you have to stop because there are so many vulnerable groups that haven't received the vaccines. Because according to the WHO situation report recently, it said that the number of older people who haven't got any single shot is still so many. And then the number of healthcare workers who haven't uh, got any single dose, it's also still thousands, mostly in remote areas. So this is why... We asked the government to stop this crazy program. And then we uh, sent a public suit to the government to revoke the regulation of paid individual vaccinations. You know, we haven't heard at all. The regulation is still there. So we are closely monitor about this. And then uh, we're trying to prepare for the next step going to the court. Because otherwise, if the regulations of the paid vaccination are still there in the near future, who knows that they will do that still. So keeping them to account is one of the things that you're doing all the time. Can we talk a bit about misinformation about the pandemic? Um, Mentioned that in some remote parts of Indonesia, some people, maybe they don't even know that the pandemic is there or they choose to ignore it. But we also know that there's this misinformation campaigning that goes on. There are so many misinformations that have been handling by the government, national police, and then some civil society. But for us, uh, we don't pay really attention to that. What we concern a lot is disinformation that actually spread by authorities. Like, for example, when you publish 
the number of uh, people who are recovered from COVID-19. Is it wrong? No, it is not wrong. But what is this for? What this number stand for? The people would think that we are okay doing good with all of this. You better uh, tell the public that this is the new cases number. This is the new death number for today. And then the trend for over the past two or three weeks has been increasing. So be mindful, be careful. What we need to do is we can together fight against the virus by doing the health protocols and so on and so forth. So I think this kind of information should be done by the government, not only a positive narrative that's been spread to the community. I would say they hide critical and important pivotal information to the public, which is not quite right. They have to implement risk communications to the public. By doing a risk communications on pandemic situations, the government also at the same time educate the public about the, the effect, the dangerous, the hazardous effect of infection. That way, it could increase the risk perceptions of people and then people would be more alert than before. And then also consequently, uh, what we see right now, what is not fair for the public is we don't get this actual, the accountable, the transparent data from the government. But the public have to do the health protocol. When they fail to wear masks, when they still go outside, when they still have a mass gathering, the government will blame them maybe they don't understand the situation because you don't tell us the truth. But most, I think, the majority of people in Indonesia, they will think that what has been told by the government is the truth. That's why they don't have adequate risk perceptions about what is going on uh, regarding the uh, infections at the community level in their area. What role is the media playing, if I can ask that do you feel like the media are being given all the freedoms and taking advantage of the freedoms that they should have to port the reality of the pandemic? There are so many good media, like uh, when you need to have a white list of media, like we could mention uh, Tempo, Tirto, Kumparant, uh, Narasi, Matanajwa, and so on and so forth, Kompas um, sometimes. I think... I believe there are still many other uh, media that has been trying to present the real data, to tell uh, the real story from the ground. But the problem is, I think it's not only the media itself, but the capability of uh, the government, civil society, and whoever who could fit information to media. You know, media uh, can only receive some receive informations if they are given information. So it depends on who gave the information to the media. In the era of positive toxicity, where authority always tell a story to the media about positive things, this is actually an acute situation where we need to pay attention more. Data in transparency and then also accountability of the information that is given to positive, positive, positive news. You mentioned earlier that you were not being listened to, that experts were not being listened to by government. Has that 
changed over time from you know the beginning when there was this denial until the reality that is a huge crisis today well there is a progress of course but then just like when we eat something for the appetizers yes we are listened we are being listened uh, by them but then for the main course i guess they would prefer to listen more from the private sectors economic and political interest group are being hurt more by the government i can prove it by the uh, the policy that has been taken by the government so far for example when you don't fully lock down for example it's actually you don't want to sacrifice the economy you don't want to sacrifice the business from those big corporations you don't want to close down the malls you don't want to close down the infrastructures building process for example in every country of the world this fine balance is being tried to be reached um and everyone's finding a different way a different path but i guess maybe for our listeners it might help to tell us a few of those numbers mm-hmm. i think i wanted to share death of data of healthcare workers uh that's include uh, doctors nurses midwives and all uh, those who work at the medical lab ambulance drivers and then uh, there were those who worked at the hospital as a cleaning service too uh, just to give you a pictures of um, the situation in indonesia so to uh, 9 of august we had almost 2000 healthcare workers who died from a uh, covid-19 so the exact number is uh, 1815 uh, healthcare workers and then the highest death number of those healthcare workers who died across one and a half years was in july in july itself we had 445 healthcare workers who died from covid-19 so from here Uh, we could clearly see that um, the infection the transmission at the community level is increasing and then at the uh, reaching in the highest peak in july and hopefully this august the number is going to decrease but we don't know yet we need to pay attention we we have to closely monitor given the situations in the village level in the remote area it's uh, getting worse uh, right now Yeah, those numbers are really really important I think because well they reveal so many things, don't they? They reveal that the system, the healthcare system is under so much pressure. It reveals failures in the vaccination program potentially. Um and that the system's only getting under greater stress. What is happening in terms of testing rates? Just recently in the last day or so, the government's said that they're going to aim to test more people. They kind of aim to test more people but the fact when you see the national uh, data on testing uh, the trend is decreasing. Uh they aim to have more than 400,000 500,000 uh, a day testing but uh, we've never since that we could uh, reach the goal but instead um the number is just decreasing. And uh, we need to understand Uh, when the government said 400,000 or 500,000 we have to ask it is person 400 persons or 500,000 person or specimen the one that is widely published is on the specimens because one person could be tested more than one times right and then the real uh, testing data that the government have is actually on the national data they are fail 
to present data testing uh, from each uh, provinces and each uh, city and uh, region level. We've been asking the government to open the testing data at the city levels because uh, it is very important uh, for people in the very small area to know what is going on in terms of the infections in their city, in their surrounding neighborhood, for example. But uh, they've never released the testing data even though it is very important. We don't have any idea in terms of um, uh, positivity rates if we don't know the testing. And then it all flows through, right? You don't have buy-in from the public for the mitigation and prevention if they don't see it in front of them. I know that lots of people listening today may be thinking, how can we help? What can be done? And you are a volunteer organization. We have listeners inside Indonesia, outside. Is there any way that our listeners might be able to assist to help? Uh, well, actually, we need international community to stand with us to, to help Indonesia uh, in two ways, maybe. First of all, we need some aid when you could donate uh, something for healthcare workers or for there are so many kids who lost their parents, for example. It, the information can be easily found. Uh, widely from the internet. And secondly, maybe we need to communicate to the government of Indonesia to, to be more transparent in controlling the pandemic in the nations. Otherwise, we, we will be left behind other countries in terms of exiting this pandemic situation. So it is very important that as a neighbor countries, for example, international community to to speak to our government because it's been so hard for us uh, from the the people, the citizens of Indonesia who try to speak, to tell the government about the, the data transparency. So maybe that international community could tell the government of Indonesia on speaking about the, uh, the situation to be more transparent. I think that would be great. Well, we'll do what we can and thank you for doing what you're doing and stay well. Thank you so much, Gemma. Thanks, Irma. That was Irma Hidayana, co-founder and lead of Lapor COVID-19. Irma is an independent public health consultant and activist. She graduated from Columbia University with her degree in health and behavioral studies and is a consultant to various organizations, including UNICEF. You can find links to the Lapor COVID website on the Talking Indonesia website. Talking Indonesia will return on the 26th of August. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>